We're in Mark chapter 13 this morning. Last week we began the uh, second of Mark's two explanatory sections from his gospel. As you remember, Mark focuses more on the events of Christ's life to demonstrate to us or to reveal to us that Jesus is both Messiah and then the Son of God. And so he doesn't spend nearly as much time on the teaching of Jesus as Matthew does. But there are two sections in the Gospel of Mark that are referred to as explanatory sections. One of them was in Mark chapter 4, and that's where Jesus taught about the kingdom of God and then explained the various responses that people would have to that. And then the second section is what we started last week, which is Mark chapter 13. And that focuses on things which lead up to the coming of Christ. In the chapters immediately preceding and following this section, Jesus is instructing his followers on what it means to be a genuine disciple. And part of that means that we have to understand what's coming. That helps explain what's necessary when we face difficult times. So we covered the first half of chapter 13 last week. Why don't you go ahead and uh, make sure you turn to Mark chapter 13 there. We covered the first half last week. We're going to cover the second half this week. As we walked through the passage last week, he dealt primarily with the destruction of the temple and then um, all the things expected prior to his return. And we focused on the number of imperatives. The, The chapter is filled with imperatives. And if you remember, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about all the details as much as we did the imperatives, what he was calling us to do, and we'll touch base on that in a second. But there's two more imperatives in our passage today, which are the commands, and that's going to sort of form the outline for what we look at today. The first one is the word recognize. In order to be ready for Christ's return, we need to be able to recognize the nearness and the certainty of his second coming. The second imperative is to keep on alert, to be alert. And so we would say that in order to be ready for Jesus' return, we must remain on alert. So today is all about that. It's about our response to what he shared last week. Why don't we go ahead and start off in verse 28. I'm going to read verses 28 and 29 of chapter 13. It's a very, sort of a short passage today. Chapter chapter uh, 13, verse 28. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. So he's talking about a fig tree here, something common to them. He says that when the leaves become tender, they would know that summer is just around the corner. If you look at what he says there in verse 29, he says, when you see these things happening, so he likens the fig tree to the things that he's just talked about, which were the things that we covered last week. So these things refers to what we found in verses 5 through 23. I'm going to read that for us just to remind us of what he covered last week. So if you would join me up in verse 5. Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginnings of birth pangs. 
Be on your guard, for they will deliver you to courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings, and for my namesake, and a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must, go, must not go down, and the ones that are outside the house must not go in. The one who is in the field must not go back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. The false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Everything we just read fits into the category of these things that we see in verse 29. It does not include the second coming of Christ or the rapture of the church. Jesus makes a fairly significant distinction starting in verse 24. All of these things refer to the things that he just listed for us. It includes things like false Christs, famines, earthquakes, persecution, betrayal, arrest, and even death for some of his followers. These are the things that Jesus' followers have faced ever since Jesus' ascension, and they will continue until ultimately he returns to rapture the church. We know that to be the case. Up in verse 7, Jesus told his disciples not to be alarmed by such things, saying that they have to take place. They're part of God's redemptive plan. And they've been that way for every generation of Christians. It started with the early church, the severe persecution that they faced for the first couple of hundred years under people like Nero. It's continued in every generation since then. And it's continuing to happen today. We see that all over the world. Places like China, I mentioned, you know, the, the largest country in the world. And their leadership has announced and has made claims that their goal is to wipe out Christianity from their country. They've now got uh, sort of a, a structure in place where pastors have to register and churches have to register. And if you don't, your churches get, get shut down, you get arrested. They're not just doing it to Christians, they're also doing the same things to Muslims. But the persecution has been intensing. You look at India, um, ranked somewhere in the top ten of the worst places for Christians to live because of the persecution, and that's been increasing significantly as well. Places like North Korea. Nigeria has been on the news recently because of some things that have been happening. you got places like Iraq, who had more Christians in the country under Saddam Hussein than they do today. They've been wiped out driven out of the country. We see things like that happening here in the United States with more and more pressures being put on churches and pastors. There was a pastor not too long ago arrested just up in Canada the last couple of weeks preaching, covering the topic of homosexuality, but was not disparaging in any way. It was not arrogant or proud or boastful. He was very gracious in the way that he addressed the crowds in the audience and he was arrested for preaching hate. 
It's just a matter of time before all that comes here. And so all of the things that Jesus has mentioned here have been happening to the church ever since his ascension. Verse 9, he tells his disciples there that arrest and persecution is coming and it would be a testimony to the nations. In fact, God has used the persecution of the church to present the gospel to kings and countries, nations, leaders, all over the world. And we see that even happening here. If it weren't for some of the things we've seen here recently in the United States with Masterpiece Cakes getting arrested for, or not getting arrested, but getting charged with you know, hate crimes because he won't make a cake for certain individuals, all of a sudden he's on the national stage and the gospel of Christ is brought to the forefront. That's the way God's, or that's the way persecution happens in the church. But look at what Jesus does in verse 29. He says, all of these things should force us to do something. And the word he uses is recognize. Verse 29, even so you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is here, or he is near, right at the door. Paul uses a Greek word there for experiential knowledge. It's, it's more than just sort of a head knowledge. It's more than just a book knowledge. It means we ought to sense it and feel it in our gut. We ought to be looking around going, yeah, something tells us, based on our experience, what we're seeing around the world, especially with these things happening. We have this experiential knowledge that Jesus is near. He describes it here as being right at the door. Right at the door. Another interesting thing about this is Jesus uses that word as an imperative, meaning he's desperately calling on us to be aware and to recognize that he is close. So what does it mean for Jesus to be near? That's a rather interesting word. In this verse, near is defined as right at the door. Notice that's not a timing thing. Did you catch that? Near is defined in the context as location, not time. Now that's important to us because when we think it's near, we think time immediately, don't we? But in this case, it's not time, it's location. At least in some respects. We can actually rule out the idea that it meant a short period of time because, folks, guess what? It's been over or almost 2,000 years. And we're still waiting. So, history just proves that when Jesus said, when you see all these things, I'm near, we know that he didn't mean, eh, next week, a couple of months, a couple of years, because it hasn't happened. Proof is in the pudding, as they say. Peter actually dealt with this issue himself. I want you to turn to Second Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. And remember, this was just a short time, probably within 30 or 35 years of, of Christ's death and uh, resurrection and ascension, Jesus, or Peter wrote this letter. And so it's only been about 30 years, and people were already saying, where's Jesus? He told us he'd come back. He said he was near. And look at how Peter addresses it. Chapter 3 of 2 Peter, starting in verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their own mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? In other words, Jesus said he's coming back. What? What's going on? He hasn't shown up. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. 
For when they maintain this, meaning the mockers, when they claim such things, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. But by his word the present heavens and earth are being preserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. In other words, God is not in a hurry. He doesn't work on our timetable. For Him, one day to us is like a thousand years to Him and a thousand years is like a day. In other words, God's not bound by time. He's not in a hurry. Ultimately, what He's saying here, Peter is saying, is when Christ returns, God will judge the world. We know that two things happen. He raptures the church and he judges the world. So he goes on and he says then in verse 9, The Lord isn't slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Why has Jesus waited at least 2,000 years now to come back? Because he's patient, not wanting any to perish, because he knows what happens when he comes back. It's judgment time. And so Peter dealt with this issue of, well, didn't he say he was near? Didn't it say he was right at the door? Well, it's because Jesus wasn't talking about time. It's clear that we're supposed to understand here from, ultimately, God's perspective, not from our perspective, The picture Jesus presents is that he's literally standing right outside the door just waiting to come in, but he's being patient because of what his return will bring about. And again, in our case, he raptures the church, but he also judges the world. In the the book of Revelation, between the sixth and the seventh seal, you see that the, the world cries out when they see that God is about ready to pour out his wrath. They know what's coming. So to recognize his return means that we know and understand that near means it's he's right out there waiting to come in, but it's not a time thing as much as it is sort of in some respects the next event, if you will. I told Amy I was going to use Amy in, a, in my sermon this morning as an illustration. I think I freaked her out a little bit. When Amy comes home from shopping on Wednesday nights, oftentimes she'll pull into the garage or if we come home from some place, in fact, today may be a good example, we'll come home from church today, and all of us will go in the house, and we'll wait, and we'll wait, and we'll wait, because Amy is still sitting in the van. The other day she mentioned, it's because sometimes it's the only quiet place I can find. But she will, she'll sit out in the van, and sometimes it's five minutes, sometimes it's ten minutes, I think we've probably waited an hour at other times, and sometimes it's when she's returning messages or texts or whatnot, but she stays out in the van. We're all in the house. But Amy is just outside the door and can come in at any moment. Now, I share this example simply to say that my wife is just like Jesus. (laughs) (coughs) Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but Jesus is kind of like that. He's basically saying, I'm right outside the door. I'm being patient. I'm waiting. It's more of a spatial thing. He's right there. Then it is a timing thing. 
And just like we have no idea when Amy's coming in the house, we have no idea, ultimately, when Jesus is walking through the door either. The next two verses, verses 30 and 32, focus on the certainty. And in the same way, I know at some point Amy will come in the house. She's not going to sleep in the van, though I wonder sometimes. I know that she'll be coming back in the house. Same thing with Jesus. Look at verses 30 and 32. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But on that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. The word translated truly here is the same Greek word for amen. It expresses the concept of certainty, dependability, assurance. We've heard Jesus use it before. It's often translated, truly, truly, I say unto you, or verily, verily, I say unto you. It's basically a word of certainty. It's Jesus' way of saying, I promise you. I promise you. You can bank on this. He used the word often in his teaching to stress things that were certain. He even emphasized this by adding that while heaven and earth will pass away, his words would not. So Jesus is basically saying, I'm going to come back. You can be absolutely certain of that. It may not be tomorrow, but it will be, and you can bank on that. In, his, in, in this particular instance, he was assuring his disciples that all of the things that would precede his return would happen. And notice he says, within their generation. There's all kinds of gymnastics that are done to take and try to retranslate that phrase, this generation. Um, and the reason for that is, depending on which party you're a part of, whether you're pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, there's any number of ways to look at eschatology. Um, some of them carry more weight than others. Some of them carry more validity than others. But depending on which camp you're in, you've got to do something with this generation. And oftentimes within pre-tribulation circles, since they see these things applying to everything, um, including the return of Christ, which I don't believe it applies to his return here, um, they'll say, well, Jesus didn't return in that generation, so these things did not happen within this generation which poses a real problem. So oftentimes that camp will try to say, well, this doesn't really mean this. It means that generation. Well, no, it says this, and it means this. And again, it, the, the, the key to it is Jesus is referring to everything in verses 23 and above. All those things did indeed happen to that generation. All the apostles were, except for Judas, killed himself, but they were all martyred except for John. They all faced exactly what Jesus described. We mentioned um, last week as we were working through this, the, the um, destruction of the temple happened in A.D. 70. Many of those things that Jesus talked about there specifically related to the temple happened at that time. The type of tribulation that he describes there had never happened in history before. It involved the wiping out of 1.1 million Jews by the Roman army when they, when they went into Jerusalem in A.D. 70, destroyed the temple. In fact, the way that the Josephus described it was there was no stone left upon any other stone, exactly as Jesus described it would happen. The Romans described um, the blood in the city as flowing like rivers because there was so much blood from the bodies being basically bludgeoned that it was pooling in the streets. All of the things that Jesus had described to them here happened in this generation. So Jesus was basically saying that all these things will happen before I return. And when you see them, know that I'm near. Know that I'm near. What Jesus did not promise this generation 
was that he would return within their lifetimes. And again, we know that that's the case here. Look at verse 32. He says, But of that day or hour, what day or hour is he referring to? Well, it refers back up to verses 24 and following, which is his return. I believe that's a reference to the rapture of the church. When he says that he will gather the elect from the four corners, the four winds. And Jesus said, of that specific day, nobody will know. So he's just assured them, all of the things I've described to you, leading up to my coming, will happen in this generation. What we also know is that they continued to happen within every generation. But he said, but as for the exact hour, the day, nobody knows. That day is actually an eschatological term, which means an end times turn. It's a, it's a technical term. It's used throughout the scriptures and it refers to the day of the Lord. It's both a time of judgment and a time of redemption. And so Jesus basically says, of that day, when that will happen, when the church will be raptured, when God will begin to, 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 for, you know, to, to finalize his plan of judgment on the nations, he said, even I don't know that day or that hour. Because only the Father knows. And it it shouldn't surprise us because Jesus himself throughout, especially the Gospel of John, makes it clear that he came only to do what the Father had him come to do. He only said what the Father told him to say. He only knew what was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit because he suspended certain aspects of who he was. He didn't stop being divine, but he didn't always act like it while he was here. Meaning, you didn't see him walking through walls all the time. You didn't see him um, always knowing everything. In fact, when the woman reached out and touched his robe, he said, who touched me? Because the Holy Spirit hadn't revealed it to him. He was dependent completely, totally on the Holy Spirit, only because he chose not to exercise certain attributes while he was here. And this is another good example. He didn't know when he was going to return. And he was content knowing, I'll come back when God sends me back. So the day and the hour, we don't know. So it's an eschatological term here. He warns us, I want you to turn to 2 second, second, uh, second Thessalonians with me. Give you some evidence for this. 2 Thessalonians. Just look at verse one or chapter 1, if you would. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. I'll start at verse 9. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints, here it is, on that day, and to be marveled at among all who believe, for our testimony to you is believed. He refers to that day, a day of judgment. And it's tied, if you look at that context, to His return. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Turn to 2 Timothy 
I'm sorry, I'm going to read down through verse 12. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffered these things. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am not, con- or, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. Notice what he says now. Until that day. He's referring to the return of Christ. Again, he uses the technical term, that day, because it's an important theological term. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 6. The last thing we have written by the Apostle Paul, and he says, verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. Again, ties the return of Christ and ultimately the rewards that are to be received as part of that day. And so what Jesus basically is saying is that we need to recognize the nearness and the certainty of his return. He's already given us the things to look for, the things to expect. Those things are to serve as a way to bolster our faith and to know that he is indeed coming. So the evidence, as we look around us and we see all of these things happening, should give us the confidence to know that he's going to return. So the first charge that we're given is that we are to recognize the nearness and the certainty of his return. And we know that that's the case. And think of the times that Christ promised us that he would return for us. I want you to turn to John chapter 14. One of my favorite passages, John chapter 14. Starting in verse 1, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. If I go to prepare a place for you, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So basically, Jesus promised us he would come back and get us. And so... Again, the first thing that we see from our passage today from Mark chapter 13 is that Jesus calls on us to recognize that his return is near and that it's certain. I want you to look at the second part, starting in verse 33 of chapter 13. There's a second imperative that he uses, and it's the idea of being alert. Chapter 30, verse 33, I'm going to read... Um, Four, four or five verses here. He says, Take heed, keep on alert. For you do not know when the appointed time will come. Well, he's just told us that. doesn't know the time or the hour. It is like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on alert. Therefore, be on alert. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. You know what we say about repetition? Anybody want to count up the number of times that word alert shows up in the passage there? I counted four times in five verses. What do you think he's trying to tell us? 
Sit back. Relax. I'll give you plenty of heads up. No, he's saying, you better be ready. That's our second imperative. Be alert. Don't just recognize. But be on alert. The Greek word he uses here technically means to keep yourself awake. Stay awake. It's used figuratively in the New Testament to refer to being on the lookout, watching for something, waiting. He drives home his point with a parable about a man who goes on a journey. The master in the parable here, who do you suppose that refers to? Who's the master in the parable? Yeah, Jesus. I see your lips moving. I know you guys know it. The master is Jesus. The journey actually represents Jesus' return to the Father's house until his return to receive us. The disciples, who do you suppose um, they represent in this parable? Anybody know? There's another group, the slaves. So the slaves represent the disciples there. They're, um, They're the ones that he actually entrusted. It says that they've each been given their task so the slaves represent his disciples, us. We're the slaves in this particular passage. We've been left in charge of his business while he's gone. So just as the master left his home in the care of the slaves, Jesus has left the Great Commission for us. Care of the church, fellow believers, the gospel, the Great Commission. We've all been given our tasks. Isn't it interesting? We've all been given gifts and abilities because we have a purpose to fulfill. Notice that the slaves in the parable, they don't know when the master is going to return. It could be at any time. It says evening, night, midnight, in the morning after the crow does his thing. So just as they must keep alert and watchful so that he doesn't return and find them asleep, Jesus is calling on us to do exactly the same thing. You know that um, my kids swam. Um, I swam for years growing up. And uh, one of the things that's different... It's, it's similar to some events, but if you've played soccer or basketball or any of those sports where you're running around on a court, um, you kind of go out, you do your thing for you know 90 minutes or 60 minutes, whatever the whatever it is. Well, with swimming and with some other things, like sometimes track and whatnot, you have events that you have to wait for. And I know Marshall's here, and you guys know what it's like. You go to these really big invitationals, and you're all in the gymnasium that they call camp, and you're waiting for your event. Well, how do you know when your event is supposed to take place? Sometimes they have a projector they'll put on the wall with what current event they're at or what event they're calling. And you have to pay attention. And sometimes, you know, you might have an hour and a half. You know, we even take the the sheets that they they give you that shows all the lane positions and all that kind of stuff, and we would go through, and sometimes they put the estimated times there. And you're like, okay, I know I've got an hour and a half before I have to swim. Well, what happens if you're off playing games with somebody? And that comes and goes. Marshals, what happens? I don't know. You missed the event, right? <laughs> you, yeah, you they always right, yeah. Well, I've missed an event or two growing up. Um, I don't know if my kids have ever missed an event. I missed two partially because they I was in one area yeah. and they skipped and then they skipped. And they Which skipped. they they and sometimes they will do that where they'll have to you know what they'll combine two heats together you know or they'll scratch an event and if you're not paying attention, guess what? You miss. The event. Jesus tells us here that we have to be alert, watching, waiting. Now, it's not because if Jesus decides to rapture the church and you're not paying attention, you get left behind. That's not the point here. 
The point is that you might be ashamed because you're not ready. You're not prepared to see him. So the question that we have today with this is, how do we stay alert? In fact, I think Kimberly even asked about that the other day at home. Well, how, what does that mean? How do, we, how do we stay alert? Well, fortunately, we have this big, thick book here that gives us a number of passages that explain to us exactly what it means to stay alert. So we're going to do some reading. We're going to go through a number of passages right now just to give you some ideas, some marching orders that you can sort of take, things that you can do that will help you understand what it means to be ready, to be prepared, and to be on alert. The first passage is Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, verses 34 and 35. Twenty-one, thirty-four, and 35. Interesting, we find this phrase at the very beginning. Be on guard, he says. This is Jesus speaking. So that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. There's that phrase, that day again. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. So what's the takeaway from this? I would say it this way, we stay alert by guarding our hearts from getting weighed down by sin and the worries of life. There are so many things that can distract us, folks. Whether it's issues we're struggling with, whether it's stuff around the world, whether it's sin, envy, temptation, things we want. I think one of the disadvantages of being in the United States here is that Christianity has been so easy for us. I've mentioned this time and time again. You know what happened with Israel? We went through the book of Judges not too long ago, and every single time things got really good with Israel, what did they do? They'll fall apart. They all start worshiping Baal. They start ignoring God. And so what, what, what does God have to do? He has to send in the enemies to chastise them, brings about difficulty, trials, then they start to finally come back to him and start begging him to do something. And what does he do? He sends them in a savior, or in their case, a judge, which then rescues them. And then things get really good again, right? And then what happens? What were there, six cycles, I think, if I remember right, in the book of Judges? It's like a spiral. They just couldn't get it through their thick heads that when things get really, really good, you guys abandon God. What happens to Christians oftentimes when things go really, really good for us and we get everything we need and everything is, we're just fat and happy and life is great? Oftentimes we have a tendency to forget. You want to know one reason why the American church is so ineffective today with leading people to Christ? We've all gotten fat and happy. You look at places like North Korea and China and parts of Africa where persecution is severe and the church is growing people are coming to Christ now their church doesn't look anything like ours here they don't have the typically big buildings and nice little programs and all that kind of stuff but people are coming to Christ many of those places people are dying because of their witness that's what Jesus is warning about here guarding our hearts from getting weighed down by all the stuff I've told you recently with my own struggle internally of working at the same job for 20 some odd years and seeing a lot of the same Christ- or a lot of the same people and getting somewhat lazy and so I've been asking for you get you folks to pray um, that God would open the door and give me some opportunities to share the gospel 
Um, I'll share one a little bit later, but he did an amazing thing on Monday. Something I asked you guys to pray for. And um, I myself get caught up. I'm so worried about having enough money for retirement someday. I'm so worried about this and that that sometimes I just forget. You know, God, you got it all taken care of. And if I'm so focused on all those other things, am I going to be ready for you when you return? So the first thing he might challenge us with is guarding our hearts from getting weighed down by sin and worries and all kinds of other things. You say, where your heart is or your treasure will be? What about another one? Well, Luke chapter 21, verse 36. Keep on alert at all times. Gee, there's that phrase again. Keep on alert at all times. Notice what he says here. Praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. He's referring there to the the, the persecutions and all the stuff that's coming Christian's way. But he gives us another clue here of how we stay alert. And one of them is to pray. To pray. It's amazing how simple that is. But it sets our focus. I'll challenge you with this. How many of you spend time on a daily basis in prayer? I'm not talking about just praying over the meal. Or just saying a quick prayer when somebody pulls out in front of you and say, Oh God! You know, and... Thank you, Jesus. You know, and that's the end of it. How many of you actually spend time actively just praying on a regular daily basis? Jesus says we have to, to stay on alert. It's amazing what happens when we commit ourselves to praying. One of the reasons why we take time in the service here is one of my struggles with with church has always been using prayer as a fill-in. It's just how you get from one event to the next in church, from a song to the teaching or from this to that. I'm not saying that's wrong. What I'm saying is, we're called to prayer. And so one of the things we've chosen to do here is to take a time where we're specifically sharing what to pray for for one another and then actually doing it. And I know sometimes it gets, you know, we're like, oh, we spend so much time doing it. But you know what? That's what we're called to. The early church did that. We're called to that. It's one of the ways we stay sharp. One of the ways we stay on alert. What about a third one? Turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Starting in verse 44. For this reason you must also be ready. There's, he didn't say the word alert there, but it's close, isn't it? For this reason you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces. This is pretty brutal. Cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's the point here? Well, it's actually what we found very early. It's a very simple word. It's the word faithful. Notice he says that faithful servant. 
In other words, he put this servant in charge of taking care of his household, being busy about the job that he was given to do. That's faithfulness. And so the third way that I think that we can dem- or that we can be prepared is to remain faithful, to demonstrate faithfulness to the task that God has given to us. One of the ways that we stay ready is by doing what God's called the church to do. One of the reasons why um, I've been focusing more on evangelism is I'm not a gifted evangelist. You know, God assigns different gifts. I knew guys when I was in seminary that could lead a rock to Christ. They would come in almost every single class and say, oh, I was down at the bus stop and I led this guy to Christ. Oh, and then like 10 minutes later I was in the grocery store and I led this woman to Christ. And every week they're coming in with something and I'm going, I don't even kind of get opportunities like that, you know? There's certainly God gifts some with that gift of evangelism, that they just have this thing, and the scriptures tell us that. Others are given the gift of mercy. Others are given the gift of, of teach. Some are given the gift of, of helps. Well, I've been gifted a certain way, and I've never been a gifted evangelist, which means that I, I haven't always focused on leading people to Christ as maybe I should, but the Great Commission is they were supposed to make disciples. And I thought, you know, I, I want a bigger part in that. I want God to use me in that way. And he may never use me as a great evangelist. But, but I, I realized I'd gotten kind of lazy. And I re- began to realize, you know, part of faithfulness means I ought to be looking for opportunity to talk to people about Christ. Not just Christians. And so I'd be, I've been praying about that and asking God. And it's been amazing to watch what he's done. And he's given me more opportunities to do that with people. For me... That's part of being faithful. When I see Christ, I want him to say, yeah, you were faithful with the task that I gave you to do. Not just with my gifts and abilities. I teach every week. I think I'm able to say, okay, Lord, I did the best I could there. I know that's the way you wanted to use me. But I think he also wants to use me to, to at least reach the unsaved to some degree. Again, I may never be a gifted evangelist. He may never use me to lead hundreds of people to Christ, but I think he still wants me to talk to the unsaved about Jesus in some form or fashion. That's being faithful. And so one of the ways that we are ready for him is to be faithful stewards. And that does start with your gifts and abilities. But I think it goes beyond that sometimes. Being a faithful witness. Here he left them in charge of taking care of the household. He's left us in charge of taking care of the body of Christ. So the third way, I think, was, is demonstrating faithfulness. Let's look at a fourth one. Uh, Matthew chapter 25 going to read another chunk of verses here. This is the parable of the ten virgins. It's one you're familiar with. Verse 25, chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with or went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert. There's the phrase. Be on the alert, for you do not know the day or hour. What he's basically getting at here is you get these, these virgins that are all waiting for the bridegroom to come. And so they go out and they take their lamps. 
Half of them take oil with the lamps, because why? You need oil, right? The lamps don't work without oil. The other half just take the lamp. The bridegroom shows up. They can't go out and meet him because I got a match and I got a, I got no oil. The point of this particular parable is being wise. Jesus is telling them to be wise. You can't take a lamp without taking oil. You know, there's a certain amount of wisdom to what we do and why we do it. I think about, um, I'll go back to the example of, of trying to be a witness. I learned a long time ago that I don't want people to be shocked at work when they find out I'm a believer. Which means, if I'm going to be wise, I need to plant little seeds here and there. And so I will deliberately do things when somebody says, so what would you do this weekend? I'll say, well, I had to mow the lawn on Saturday, but then I also had to do some study. I'm hoping they'll say, oh, study for what? And then I can say, oh, I preach on Sundays. But I'm also prepared because if they don't say, well, study for what? I'll say, yeah, I've got to prepare my sermons. I've got to find time to do that. Why do I do that? I'm being wise. Being wise. And so one of the ways that we demonstrate being on alert is to be wise in the way that we live, the things that we do. You know, it's amazing the number of times the scriptures refer to the people who live like a fool. If you live like a fool, you won't be ready for Christ. Even if you wear that label, the big I'm with Jesus on your t-shirt, if you live like a fool, you won't be ready. And I'll be real bold and real honest. There's a lot of, a lot of Christians that live like fools. You've met them. Oh, you're a believer? Maybe they are. I'm not judging that. Certainly don't live like it. I certainly don't see it reflected in your life. And again, that's not a judgment issue. It's just being wise. And if anything, it ought to force us to say, I'm hoping that my life is wiser than that. So when you look at somebody else and you wonder, huh, they were saved. That's interesting. Maybe I ought to look back at ourselves and say, man, I hope people don't look at me that way. I hope that when they look at me, they go, oh no, he's definitely a believer. Fourth way I think we stay alert is being wise in the way that we live, the things that we do, the things that we value. The last one I'll I'll mention here, and there's probably a ton more. We've got a big book here. But the fifth one I'll mention here comes from Matthew chapter 25 as well, starting in the following verses, verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each one according to his ability, and he went on a journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents and went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things, but I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who also had received one talent came and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, have back what's yours. 
But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow, and you gather where I did not scatter seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have at least received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and to the one who has abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does shall be taken away. Throughout the worthless slave into the outer darkness, in that place there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's the overall point of this? The way I would summarize it is this. We stay alert by investing the talents and abilities that God has given us. Each one of us has been given abilities. But beyond that, we've also been given spiritual gifts, which is a specific dynamic work of the Holy Spirit that has been given to you for the purpose of meeting needs within the church, reaching out to people around you. And so one of the ways that Jesus tells us to be ready, and he does that in chapter 25 here, is part of the same section we were reading in Mark chapter 13, which is why it ties in. So Jesus is giving them these parables to tell them how to be ready, how to be on alert. And one of the things he does here is he says by investing their gifts and abilities. He's given to us certain things. If we focus on those things, do you think there's the likelihood that we'll be more ready when he comes back? Yeah. So each one of us has been given gifts and abilities. And if we want to make sure that we remain on alert, we ought to be investing those abilities using the gifts that God has given us. It's amazing when we find ourselves investing in that way, how your focus has a tendency to turn towards Christ. Much like when we put all kinds of work and energy into our jobs, how our minds go there sometimes. Melanie you know, shared with us just the job transition recently. How much of your day was sucked up thinking about that's where your heart, isn't it? I mean, it's just, it's amazing how it just sucks the life out of you, you know? In some respects, investing time and energy with the gifts and abilities for the purpose of serving Christ and the church has a tendency to focus your mind back on Him to prepare you to be ready for that. So, what's our conclusion on all this? I'll just wrap it up with, with this very briefly. Two things that Christ has challenged us with today. He's already told us, expect all these things I'm coming back, expect these things. And the two charges that he gave to us today was that we first recognize the nearness and the certainty of his return, and then secondly, that we must remain on alert, waiting and watching. The New Testament is is filled with this idea that what we are to be looking for and waiting for is his glorious appearing. That's where our focus is. That's where everything is aimed. And we can be certain that he's coming. And our goal now is to be on alert and ready for it whenever it happens. It may happen in our lifetime. It may not. But either way, we're ready. Because guess what, folks? Even if he doesn't come in our lifetime, you will stand before him. And that's kind of what Paul was getting at in the end of Second Timothy. He's like, I know I'm being poured out like a drink offering. I don't believe that Paul at that moment expected Christ to return before he died. He's pretty clear that no, I'm going to die, I'm going to go to be him, but I will stand before him. So being ready, even if he doesn't come in our lifetime, still prepares us to stand before him, does it not?